The following interview was recorded for CFRO The Pulse, Vancouver Co-op Radio's daily news show. The Pulse airs Monday to Friday at 7 a.m. on 100.5 FM and streaming live at coopradio.org. On today's show, we're talking with Dr. Emily Jenkins. She's an assistant professor of nursing at University of BC, and her latest study looks at the mental health impacts of COVID isolation rules. She's also the author of A Concise Introduction to Mental Health in Canada and an expert in harm reduction and mental illness. Thank you, Dr. Jenkins, so much for joining us here on Vancouver Co-op Radio. Thank you for having me. Uh, so I, what we wanted to talk today about mental health and isolation during this time of COVID, especially as we go into the second wave. What were you seeing that kind of sparked your, your interest in researching this? Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you. Well, quite early on uh, in the pandemic, um, colleagues and, and I were, were talking about the mental health impacts uh, of the pandemic on the population. Um, there was some early studies uh, or polls that were suggesting that about half of uh, Canadians were experiencing a deterioration to their mental health. Um, And certainly, you know, you would hear about that in terms of, um, you know, people feeling extremely stressed out, uh, there being um, a lot of unpredictability in terms of uh, jobs, the economy, access to childcare, uh, food security, those types of things, and, and also the virus itself. So it wasn't uh, surprising at all. Um, but we were interested in, in providing a bit more nuance to those numbers and trying to understand who's most impacted by the pandemic and in what ways the pandemic is contributing to widening mental health inequities. Uh, and so uh, we've been engaged in a multi-wave uh, national monitoring survey of the mental health impacts of COVID in partnership with the Canadian Mental Health Association. And uh, this is uh, this exploration into the mental health impacts of quarantine represents one of the analyses that we've done with this uh, first wave of our data, which was collected back in May. Now, when we talk about like isolation and quarantine, we're not just talking only about people, you know, not being able to, to have a guest over, although that's part of it. But we have something like multiple thousand people now self-isolating at home. Uh, it looks for, I was looking at StatsCan last night and between about 45 and 55 percent of people are single in the province, uh, more couples in the city. But that's something that is quite worrying that we have these thousands of people expected to self-isolate at home without supports. And now we're adding on to that not to be able to potentially see guests. Yes, absolutely. So in our in this particular analysis, we're looking specifically at quarantine or self-isolation. So um, a public health measure used to control the spread of the virus and a critical one. Um, some early modeling during COVID suggested that uh, this uh, quarantining um, uh, averts up to 81% of cases and up to 63% of deaths. So um, we, we know that it 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 must continue, uh, but we also know that it's not without significant mental health consequences. Mm. Now, when you say like quarantining, we're talking about the the fourteen day on average uh, sort of break that someone has to be at home after they uh, contract COVID and are recovering from it. Uh, yeah, so or returning from traveling. Quarantine. Yes, exactly. So quarantine is the ten to fourteen day period. It kind of varies in some cases by province, uh, during which people are mandated to remain at home, or in some cases in a hotel if there's not, uh, you know, an appropriate space for them in their in their own home, um, and to avoid contact with others. 
Um, and so uh, typically this happens due to uh, a diagnosis of COVID, uh, uh, symptoms uh, that could potentially be COVID, a potential exposure uh, to somebody that had COVID uh, or recent travel. Hmm. Now, uh, before we kind of get into the nitty gritty of the study and kind of the implications, I mean, this is such a real human impact. And part of what I've noticed of the kind of irony of social media is, although I tend to be like hours of doom scrolling and getting more depressed by it, you also see people calling out for help quite a lot and just expressing how devastating the isolation can be during this time on top of all the the worries about our economic and housing security for instance yeah it's it's pretty pretty brutalizing it is um it is hard to to see some of those things and to imagine um the experience that some people are having um you know personally uh you know, this is a challenging time. And I think about, you know, how much privilege I have and um, I feel very uh, fortunate uh, to have the resources that I do available to me to still have a job and um, to, to have access to childcare now at this point. Um, but uh, certainly uh, there are much greater struggles that are causing people to feel a lot of despair. And of course, that cuts across pretty much any level of society. Part of the difference, I guess, would be how isolated people are or what kind of access they have to resources to get help. Yeah, it certainly cuts across. Um, but uh, as I mentioned, one of the things that we really wanted to examine in our um you know, in doing this survey work was to see, you know, who's most impacted and um, certainly those populations who um, experience uh, social or health inequities uh, or systemic oppression have been overrepresented in our data uh, in terms of the mental health consequences of the pandemic. So more specifically, um, you know, these are people who are already living with a mental health condition, have some of the highest um, uh prevalence of uh, mental health consequences of the pandemic. Um, also, people who are living, identified as living with a disability, uh, people who are um, Indigenous uh, and racialized uh, have identified, uh, you know, being much more likely to have uh, some of these experiences. Uh, so, um, well, you know, the overall population is certainly feeling the stressors. Um, we're quite concerned about uh, how these impacts are going to persist, particularly um, for those that um, may already be struggling because of uh, barriers. Now, when we look at the kind of racialized disparities in, in the data, um, is this to do with like COVID impacting people disproportionately in those communities? Or is it to do with the, the fact that people came into this already without the any kind of public uh, funding for mental health and inability to get help in, in communities? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I, I certainly think it's a combination of both. So, you know, you've got uh, groups who um, may be more likely to be working precariously or um, in uh, positions that uh, they're more likely to have been laid off during this time, uh, where they may have been making less of an income uh, to, to begin with and have fewer um, kind of savings to be able to draw on. Uh, those types of things. And then you kind of layer on um, the stigma associated with uh, COVID itself, um, the kind of general um, 
experiences that have been surfacing in society around systemic racism uh, within our healthcare systems. Um, you know, there's been a lot around uh, Indigenous people and how their uh, experiences within our healthcare system are uh, quite horrific um, in many cases. And so I think there's a, you know, a collusion here of uh, um, really uh, challenging circumstances. Mm. How much of this also relates to kind of economic status or class? Because uh, I saw graphs uh, from, thankfully, Ontario gives much de- more detailed information and data on the COVID outbreak, but it's directly and very obviously proportional to income in terms of how many people are hospitalized yes. with COVID and die of COVID. Yeah, yeah. So we that was another area that we looked at. And uh, uh, as you say, um, those in our lowest kind of income bracket, which was a uh, uh, less than 25,000 a year household income, uh, we're definitely uh, much more likely to uh, report mental health deterioration, which means, you know, um, a change uh, to the worse, worsening of their mental health overall, uh, challenges with coping uh, with difficult emotions, uh, as well as with, uh, you know, increases in substance use as a way to, to manage these difficult times um, and experiences of, uh, you know, suicidality and self-harm. Can we talk about that a bit? And we'll put the helpline at the end of our show today if anyone's uh, struggling with that. But how much of a factor is that? I I saw that there's uh, quite a high rate, especially for people who were forced to quarantine because they had COVID symptoms. Yeah, so we asked people um, in our study if they themselves or their household had had to self-isolate for any of those reasons that I identified um, previously. So they had a diagnosis, they had symptoms, somebody else had symptoms, so there was a potential exposure or recent travel. Um, And we found that uh, for uh, people who had had to quarantine for any reason, Um, that uh, they were much more likely to report having experienced suicidal thoughts. Uh, So that was 11% of of that particular sample, um, compared to 5% amongst those who hadn't had to quarantine. So uh, the risk more than doubled uh, for that particular group. And uh, similarly, we see uh, much more uh, high prevalence of uh, deliberate self-harm amongst uh, this group who's had to quarantine as well with nearly 4% of that population identifying um, engaging in self-harm, uh, you know, if they'd quarantine versus just over 1% uh, in the overall um, or in the population who hadn't had to quarantine. Well, that's devastating. It, it is. And, um, you know, while I'm drawing these comparisons and, and saying, you know, it's it's over double um, for, for those who haven't had to quarantine, um, let's be clear, uh, these these numbers, even for those who haven't had to quarantine, are still much higher than we would expect um, or would have expected pre-COVID. Uh, so as an example, um, it's uh, 2018 data from the Public Health Agency of Canada um, estimates about 2.5% of the population as having experienced suicidal thoughts in the past year. Um, so we've we've doubled we've doubled that even just among um, the general population at this point. And so you add a quarantine on top of that, exacerbates it further. And I'm understanding from your data that people who quarantined because they had COVID had a much much greater risk of suicidality and self harm 
and thoughts than people who quarantined because they traveled into the country. So it's not just about being put ordered to be home. Yes, it's 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 um, the reason for isolation is important. And I'll just clarify, it wasn't actually um, those who had uh, identified as having COVID themselves. And that's probably partly because at the, at the time of data collection, there weren't all that many people yet who had been um, uh diagnosed with it and who would have been sampled then for participation in our study. Um, but actually, it was people who had had to quarantine because of contact with somebody with symptoms. Um, they were the most likely of our various groups to report having suicidal thoughts at nearly 28%. So again, that's that's first 5% amongst those who hadn't quarantined. Would you have any interpretation of that? I know a survey doesn't necessarily give you too much of a chance for follow-ups, but why do you think that is? Or might be. Yeah, um, yeah, you're right. Uh, surveys don't give you the nuance that you'd often like to kind of understand why this um, particular phenomenon is happening. Um, but we do have some hypotheses. Uh, given that the, the group who traveled did not uh, experience increased risk over and above those who hadn't quarantined, uh, we believe that, um, you know, the, there's an element of the unpredictable nature of quarantining for symptoms or exposure that plays a role. So, you know, people who are traveling, they they would recognize that when they come here uh, or come home, uh, that they're going to have to quarantine for a period of time. So they have the opportunity to prepare for that, both mentally and, you know, with supplies and that kind of thing. Uh, whereas people who are having to quarantine because of a potential exposure or symptoms, um, you know, might, be, might just receive a call from public health instructing them to stay home and, uh, and there's not that opportunity to prepare. Uh, it also means that, um, you know, introduces a bunch of fear into the into the picture for a lot of people, you know, questions about do they have the virus? Have they potentially passed it on to others? Um, as well as, you know, it contributing to uh, lost income if they're having to be off of work, potentially uh, food insecurity, uh, if they've been prepared and they have what they need in the house, uh, loss of uh, access to social supports, those kinds of things. So, um, you know, really uh, creating a, a, a different picture for those who are um, isolating due to a, a potential exposure or their own symptoms. Now, you're not advocating for, uh, you know, not doing these measures that we have proven do, you know, keep the transmission uh, in check. But what is it that governments and policymakers can actually do to try to address this issue? What 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 actually can be made available to both curb the COVID spread and stop this from, you know, becoming an even greater tragedy? Yeah, so we absolutely, you know, we, we need to retain these uh, critical public health measures um, <clears throat> around quarantine and isolation. But uh, given what we know about the mental health consequences and the severity of them, um, you know, I think there's some important changes that could be made and, and likely quite straightforward ones. So, um, for example, we know that the, the mental health impacts um, extend beyond the quarantine period itself. itself. So uh, this is from previous uh, research from, you know, past pandemics that indicates that some of these experiences end up being quite longstanding. Uh, so given this, uh, you know, it would be important for clinicians to uh, flag uh, people who've had a period of quarantine um, and pair that with further assessment and follow up uh, <clears throat> for a period of time. Make sure that people have uh, the mental health supports that they need. And the other thing that we're really advocating for is um, a change to uh, kind of how 
quarantine measures are put into place um, by public health. So, uh, you know, right now you'll be asked to 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 do the quarantine period. Um, there's some uh, surveillance that goes into it where, uh, you know, a public health nurse or uh, another member of the public health team might contact you, check in, make sure that you're adhering to um, the quarantine rules and that you're not, you know, leaving your residence, etc. cetera. Um, but we th- we're, we're saying that there should also be built in uh, mental health checks in that process uh, so that we're not allowing um, people or, or not requiring of people who are in crisis to mobilize themselves to try and seek support. Um, so let's make this a, a more active as opposed to passive process in terms of um, monitoring and assessing for mental health challenges during that time. And uh, so one of the ideas that we have uh, based on another um, <clears throat> analysis that we did was trying to uh, make people more aware of the online or virtual mental health resources that exist. I was about to ask you about that because you partnered with the Canadian Mental Health Association, which in BC has the Bounce Back program. And we've talked about it with their CEO on this program before. Uh, there's a lot of others, too. Oh, great. Yeah. Yeah. So um, uh, Bounce Back has a, a long history of providing a, a virtual uh, mental health uh, support service uh, in the province of British Columbia. Um, and as of this week, Bounce Back has now been made available through um, uh, injections of funding from the government to make sure that Canadians have access to these types of resources at this challenging time. Uh, the federal government also has a program or a resource called um, uh, Wellness Together Canada. Uh, so that's available. Uh, both of these um uh, particular resources are free of charge, um, but we found that their uptake is extremely low, around 2% of uh, the general population and only rising to a, about 2.8% among those that have described experiencing depression, anxiety, uh, hopelessness, etc. during this time. Um, so, you know, part of it is uh, is that uh, actually a large part of it, we believe, is that um, people just aren't aware of these resources. Um, but under, you know, quarantine conditions, they become a, a pretty ideal uh, solution that we could start to better implement, um, supported by, you know, the public health system to make people aware and to kind of check check in on how that process is going. Um, they're quite appropriate for mild to moderate symptoms of, uh, you know, stress as well as um, depression and anxiety. And they're, they're, these particular ones are have a strong evidence base behind them. So we can we can trust the information um, that's there for people. And I understand that uh, bounce back in particular, it's not counseling per se, it's a skill building program. So it's actually helping people build up resources and capacity to like manage their own anxiety and stress. That's right. And so uh, these resources could be really beneficial, obviously, not only to people who are in quarantine, but as I said, they're they're quite ideal in the sense that you can access them from your own home. So you don't need to, uh, you know, worry about the potential virus spread uh, that's associated with personal contact with a provider. Um, But uh, because they're focused on skill building and they're based on cognitive behavioral therapy principles, um, which have a a really strong evidence base to them, um, you know, they're good for anybody who's experiencing increased stress during this very challenging time um, to help them to develop strategies that they can use to better cope. 
Hmm. Um, I guess the last question I want to ask is kind of zooming in on these uh, in he- mental health inequities that you talked about, because that seems like another systemic issue that needs addressing during and after this pandemic, which is just how hard it is to get access to mental health care uh, for, for people yeah. who have more than, uh, you know, just stress or anxiety for, for people with mental health conditions. Absolutely. So, you know, it, it's always been a challenge. Our mental health system has uh, long been critiqued for being, um, you, you know, fraught with uh, with these types of challenges in terms of, uh, you know, huge proportions of our population who need the care not being able to access it. So, you know, I think um, the pandemic has helped to highlight uh, the, the failings, current failings within that system and provide an opportunity for, you know, us as, uh, you know, health healthcare provider group. Um, I, I'm a nurse by, uh, by training. Um, and, uh, you know, a society at large to consider, you know, how we value our mental health and uh, how we want our governments to invest in mental health care services. Um, but in addition, many of these inequities stem from uh, mental health inequities stem from uh, these systemic issues, as you've uh, so eloquently stated uh, in the lead up to this question. So, uh, you know, people living in poverty, people experiencing racism, um, people with mental health uh, challenges or disabilities who experience exclusion, those types of things um, aren't going to be dr- addressed specifically through mental health care. Uh, so in addition to, you know, strengthening our treatment systems, we really need to be considering how we address these root determinants of mental health um, at a systems level, at a policy level. Hmm. Um, Before we close, is there anything you personally have found that has been helpful for you kind of getting through the stress and anxiety on a day-to-day level? For me, it's like a checklist by my door telling me to do one dish and get outside. Yeah. But I know that a lot of people are just looking for something. Yeah. I was going to say, I'm not sure I'm the best person to ask because I'm definitely not a, a poster person for, um, you know, self-care at this time. (laughs) How many of us are really? I've been working a lot and that motivates me and and drives me. So um, for me, focusing on, uh, you know, understanding these issues better and trying to um, improve experiences and outcomes for people, I guess, helps helps me feel better. Um, And uh, and then I guess I know that uh, I have to do more, uh, get outside, go for walks, etc. And I, I think that you know, I, I recognize that uh, it's a, it's a challenging thing, and and that's why I say we don't just need more mental health care. We need, uh, you know, shifts that allow people to be able to um, do these things to take care of themselves. Uh, and so, um, yeah, it, it's not all on the individual um, to to try and promote their mental health. We have to. Uh, do it collectively invest in that as a society as well well it's really powerful thank you so much for sharing and i wish you the best with getting outside and and getting a bit of a breather from your work (laughs) as well if possible (laughs) thanks david thank you dr jenkins much appreciated take care and that was dr emily jenkins a professor of nursing at the university of british columbia if you want to access the bounce back program from the canadian mental health association it is free and has online and phone components go to bouncebackbc.ca. That's bouncebackbc.ca. If you're struggling with suicide or self-harm, you can call the Crisis Center at crisiscenter.bc.ca or their phone line 
1-800-784-2433. That's 1-800-784-2433. There's also the mental health support line at 310-6789. And know that you're not alone. Thank you so much for listening. CFRO The Pulse is brought to you by the Local Journalism Initiative, a program funded by Heritage Canada and administered through the Community Radio Fund of Canada.